Good morning and welcome to episode 54 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you have joined me today. This is going to be something of a regular episode in that I want to go back. I collected a bunch of listener questions and listener suggestions for topics from the various places, Facebook, Patreon, and email, and I want to talk about some of those. I'll get back to B-School Radio in the next couple of episodes. I also have some, to me, very exciting things coming up for you later this month. One is an interview that I recorded with Corey Stevens of Stevens Bee Company in Missouri. Corey is a queen breeder whose queens were some of the most exciting queens I had in my yard last year. I called up and interviewed Corey. That was really fun. Great fellow and really fun to talk to. I also have recorded an interview with Lewis Cobble, who is the North Carolina bee inspector for our region here in the mountains. He had some very interesting things to say. That was fun, too. Those will be coming up this month. Another thing I want to do this month is uh, Buck Bradley from North Carolina. He is going to be sitting for the journeyman test in the North Carolina Master Beekeeper Program later this month. And he asked if I would do an episode reviewing for the test. I had mentioned before I had a study guide that members of my bee club assembled from various online published sources and from some of the test recommended testing resources. And so I'm going to share with you the what I had to help me study. And then Buck was kind enough to share some things that he had put together to study for the test. So we're just going to have a test overview session. If you're not interested in the North Carolina Journeyman Test, you can skip that one. I don't know how it applies to other states' journeyman tests, but if you just want to quiz yourself and see how much B-factoid knowledge you got going on, then that will be an episode coming up also in February because the next testing for North Carolina for certified journeyman and master beekeepers is in New Bern, and I believe it's the first weekend in March of 2020. And so if you are going to sit for that, you better be studying this in February. So something I had mentioned on a previous podcast is that I was planning to give away a jar of five apple honey to one of the patrons over at patreon.com slash five apple. And I did a low budget random drawing, which meant I asked a house guest that happened to walk into our house, name a number between 1 and 33. And she did. And so then I went to the list of patrons. The patron that had joined at at that number happened to be Rachel Dewhurst. So Rachel Dewhurst, you have won a jar of five apple honey. So if you will contact me, you can email me if you want, or that's blueridge714 at gmail.com, or contact me on Patreon and get me your mailing address because you have got a jar of honey. Thanks so much to all the patrons. You keep all these podcasts going. So first, I got a note from Becky in British Columbia. She is writing on behalf of herself and a group of four H'ers who are listening, and I just was so thrilled by this. This was her note. Good morning. I'm going into my third year beekeeping, and I I still feel so much like a new. I've been listening and enjoying your podcasts. I'm a 4-H leader and have seven beekeeper members learning, age 10 to 16, and they are loving it. I greatly appreciate your sharing your knowledge. I'm in British Columbia, Canada, and our seasons are very different. I've instructed my kids to listen as well to keep the weather and location in mind. Thank you again. Becky, I am just so thrilled to hear that some young people might be listening to this. 
And even though I am sure they're probably thinking, wow, she is so uncool. I hope they will go on and listen to the bee stuff and grow up to be beekeepers because we certainly need more young people to take up this craft. Next, I had a conversation online on Patreon with supporter Michael Clancy. And he told me an interesting thing that's going on in his bee yard. He talked about bee yard. He was expanding it and that he had caught a very high mite count late in the season. And he had been able to act on that and to knock those mites back with OAV vaporization. And then he said, you know, he was really hoping that he could get them through till spring, but that he also knew that probably Tom Seeley would have said to cull that hive. And I want to comment on that because I think that sometimes is, to my mind, a misunderstanding of the goal of what Tom Seeley is saying. Now, Michael didn't have this misunderstanding. I'm not saying that. It's just out there in, in the world. And I want to talk about it since he brought it up. In several of famous researcher Tom Seeley, if you don't know, his articles on Darwinian beekeeping. He talks about that if you have a hive with a very mite count, that it might be appropriate at time to cull that hive um, or exterminate that hive so that both the mites would die and the genetics of those bees would be wiped out. This is something that some of the treatment-free groups, they allow their hives to just uh, die with mites which I've talked a lot about why I don't think that's the best course of action. It is a course of action, but maybe not the best in my opinion. But anyway, so Tom Seeley on this culling hives, I think he was referring to if, you know, as if there's no other option or as as if it has gotten to a point where that hive is so far gone, so mite riddled and disease laden that there's nothing to do. I highly recommend you keep much better tabs on your hive so that in the event you have a high mite count, a very high mite count, which is what precedes a crash, which is what precedes what, you know, what's termed a mite bomb, which is not so much it's not so much that the mites jump out of that hive and go to other places, although they can if there are new hives. It is often more that robbers from other hives come in, the mites get on them and go back to many other hives. And that's the concept of the mite bomb for the brand new people. Bless your hearts. You're going to hear so much about mite bombs that you're just going to want to throw up every time you hear it like I do. But but unfortunately, there is truth underneath all this. So this whole idea of culling a hive versus letting the mites go out. To me, if I were in that room, I would be jumping up and down, waving my hand, saying, why would we not treat the mites, preferably with an organic treatment like oxalic acid, to where we knock the mites down? The, ne- the mites are now dead on the bottom board, which we verify by a, ma- a mite count after the treatment. And then that hive is more or less cleaned up of mites. Now, there may be residual viruses, and that is something that we would have to to watch for. But so you've got that hive cleaned up. Now, what you don't have is good genetics in that hive. But the way to replace genetics in a hive is not to kill off the whole hive. It is to simply replace the queen. The queen carries all the genetics of that hive. She mothers the drones, which then carry the male genetics of that hive that go out. And then she lays the eggs that are fertilized, that become the female workers, that are the heart. Well, not just the heart, but the whole shebang of the genetics in that hive. So to change the genetics in a hive, you do not have to kill that hive. All you have to do is replace the queen. That is something that what I encouraged Michael, that now he had a cleaned up hive and hopefully 
it, it was in time that they can survive through till spring. When he comes out in spring, if he's, if that hive is still alive, first priority will be getting a better queen in there. He can order a mated queen from a breeder that is expressly working on mite and disease resistance. I put that out there because a lot of the just generic, you know, buy a queen places, when you go on their websites, they don't say anything about selecting. Or if they may mention, it's like, but they don't say how they do it and how rigorously. And I really encourage you to check out anybody you want to buy a queen from and ask them, what selection criteria are you using? How are you selecting for disease resistant? Where are you getting your breeder queens? Even if you don't know that how uh, great the answers they give you are, to me, this will begin to push queen rearers into knowing that their customers, their profit base, their customers are interested and are shopping based on breeders and rearers that are selecting for mite resistance. The difference, new folks, between a queen rearer, which is often a person who just, not just, (laughs) it's still not easy, but you get a breeder queen, which are really expensive, that's usually artificially inseminated with very specific, hopefully good, strong genetics, and you raise daughter queens from those and then sell them. Those are called production queens. So you got breeder queens, which are hundreds of dollars each and up. And then you've got production queens, which are, you know, in the 40 buck range. But anyway, so Michael has the option because he acted and salvaged that population, that colony. Now, hopefully he will just be able to requeen that hive. It has a completely new set of genetics. Once the population has turned over, then it's all the genetics of the new queen, which is hopefully stronger. And in my opinion, I don't see the point in wasting the population of that hive unless they are just so sick that there's no salvaging them, that to take the time to salvage them would be to endanger other hives in your yard. So, Michael, I am very impressed that you you got that mite count, you reacted, and hopefully if everything goes right, you're going to have a colony that you're able to requeen. The advantages of that are that then he still has his other colonies that didn't have high mite counts. Maybe they have better genetics than the not-so-good queen. And then when he makes new splits and raises queens off all those, you're mixing in that new purchased queen genetics and then with the ones that you've got going in your own yard. And hopefully that mix gets better and better every time it is mixed. So yes, that was a long and wandery answer to that question, but that's how I do things. So thank you, Michael, first of all, for your continued support. He is one of the people that just keep everything going. So thank you, Michael. And thank you, Becky in British Columbia, for getting the 4-H'ers to listen. I just love that. All right, here was a question that I I had neglected to mention this, I think, for a long time. Now, just everybody, there's the total possibility that I've answered these questions in the past and just don't remember, because <laughs> I just, I don't go back and listen to the podcast too much. So I apologize if, you've, if you're like, my God, she doesn't even realize that she answered that question two episodes ago. That's just my brain, unfortunately, at this age. So, but anyway, Palmer Hudson wrote me via Facebook and said that he had just finished the interview with Mark Smith, which was the very first interview that I got to do. He said, got a question, which you may answer here or elsewhere. If I have a two-year-old queen painted red from 2018, and I'd like to raise some queens for her to put in a few of my other hives next spring, how would you go about doing it? I know there's grafting, but I'm not looking for that many queens. Should I drop a nice frame of new drawn wax into the hive, let her lay it up, and then pull her from the hive to see if they raise some cells from those frames? Or should I just pull 
that frame and place it into a queenless hive and allow them to raise a queen. I'm one of those you mentioned who thinks about bees all through the year and I'm trying to make plans for next spring when the drones start emerging. Thanks for all the great stuff, Palmer. Okay, Palmer, I am so excited that you are doing this because, oh man, this is so fun when you start raising the queens. And what Palmer's talking about in using just the frames to raise queens versus versus grafting, I'm just going to call that frame-based queen rearing as I have in other podcasts. And to me, this is a perfect method for new beginners who don't want to get into grafting. Uh, Grafting is where you take a tiny larva out of a cup and you put it in a queen cell and you raise up a bunch of queens, a bunch. And I say a bunch, it's not that you couldn't raise up five with grafting, but there's a lot of prep and setup and everything for grafting that that makes it, if you do all that, you tend to raise as many queens as you have bees bees to support. But there's a simpler method of frame-based queen rearing. And I want to separate this from just splits. So when you make more queens and you just make a split and let them let the queen those half make a split. That's one way. I think it's one of the least best <laughs> methods uh, in which I'll go into depth on that. I'll cover frame-based queen rearing again very shortly here because it won't be long before it's season. But I think, Palmer, both of those methods you mentioned would work. You hit the important point, which was the frame that you want them to raise the queens on to have new fresh wax on it so that they are better able to drop the queen cell down. If it's dark wax, they have trouble breaking through that. So the queen cell is this weird L shape and it makes for a really scrawny queen if she survives at all. And not only can you do, you know, take that nice new wax, let her lay it up. The other thing you can do is is put that in there, let her lay eggs in it, and then take your hive tool on that frame and scrape away portions. This is the OTS or on-the-spot queen rearing, popularized by Mel Dickinson, Dick Dickinson, I think. And so look up OTS, or on-the-spot queen rearing. And really, the only technique, well, I mean, it's a whole system, but the, the part that's very, very practical is making those scrapes on the frame. And what you do is you you draw, you take your hive tool, and you flatten or scrape away the cells below the cells that have eggs or very, very tiny, tiny larvae, like the ones you can't see. You can just see a drop of royal jelly in there, and that's the ones you want. So when you scrape away that layer of cells below it, and it only has to be like the width of a, of a regular hive tool, you have removed the things that are in the way of them dropping that queen cell down. And sometimes they will use the ones that you have scraped. (laughs) Mine, for years, they wouldn't use them. And so finally, I don't know, it was like last year, finally I had queens that started using the scrapes that I had made for them. OTS, or on-the-spot queen rearing, is a very handy method to make a few queens. Now, when they draw those queen cells, Palmer, if that, if you scraped down to wax foundation and they make you five or six queen cells on a frame, you can cut those out very carefully and put them in chambers of a a queen castle or a queen hotel or in nukes and actually raise several queens and pick the best one from that to requeen your hive or make other hives. If it's plastic foundation, then you're only going to get one, no matter how many cells they put on a frame, you're only going to get one off that frame because you can't cut the cells apart, or at least I've never been able to get them off of plastic successfully and get them spread out. So in that case, if I have a piece of plastic foundation that's the one I used, then I will, once they're capped, I will actually cut off all but two and then pick the two biggest, fattest, best looking ones 
and leave those on there and then use that frame to requeen whatever it is that we requeening that's queenless. So I'll be talking a lot more in depth about that Palmer. Thank you so much for that question and for your long-term support of the podcast. I appreciate you. Matthew McDonald in New Zealand. Hello, New Zealand. Wants to hear more about swarm management. He says, I've heard the basics, but I'm wondering if commercial guys really go through their hives every couple of weeks checking every single frame for queen cells. Also would be interested to know how to tell whether they're planning on swarming or just superseding. And swarm management is literally on my list of something I'll be doing an entire episode, maybe a couple of episodes coming up very soon and going into probably more detail than anybody wants to know all about swarm management. But short answer, Matthew, no, they don't go through every frame. In, in in fact, you don't even have to be commercial to not go through every frame. Generally speaking, I do quick inspections through the swarm season, very strategic going in and looking at a sample of the frame I need to look at, which is one that's in the middle of the brood nest. Now, there's risk involved in this because anytime you pull a frame out of the middle, if you don't do it carefully and right, you could roll your queen if she happens to be on that frame. And she's most likely to be on those center middle frames in the brood nest which is, of course, the handy way to go about finding your queen if you are looking for her is to start looking for her right in the middle of the brood nest. But how you remove those frames from the hive is very important. And what you want to do there is you want to have space on both sides of that frame so that when you pull it out, the bees are not rolling against either, you know, God forbid the comb, but even the other bees that are on the opposite frame. So you want enough space that you can pull it out clean and you don't knock bees off with other bees because if one of those bees is your queen, she could get damaged in that process. And a quick swarm check, prevention check for me is to go in there look at my brood nest, look and see if they've got plenty of space, if there's brood in all stages from eggs all the way to big fat larvae all the way to capped. If you have a good balance of all those, then your, you know, your queen is still going strong. If you go in and you see mostly capped brood and maybe just some big fat larvae and you don't see a lot of the very, very tiny eggs and larvae, and especially if you see little glistening cells where they're starting to put nectar in the brood nest. These are big red flags that they are not only thinking about swarming, they are preparing. And one of the things they do is they block off areas of the brood nest to keep the queen from laying. Now they're also running her around, having her on a fitness program, cutting back on her diet so that she's able to fly. I am not kidding. <laughs> that's literally what they do for beginners. I know that sounds amazing, but that's what they do. And But one of the signs that I look for is that little shining cells of nectar here and there in the brood nest. Normally they don't put nectar in the middle of the brood frames. And so when they start doing that, essentially they are blocking off that cell from the queen to keep her from from starting new too much new baby larva because they are planning on going. They are reducing her laying so that she slims and her food so that she slims down and is able to fly with the swarm. Those are some of the things you want to look for and the action that you would then take when you start to see that they're cutting back on laying or they're just all crammed in there is to open up the brood nest, add more drawn comb or foundation within the brood nest. There's techniques for doing this. There's some risk involved um, if if you're still having cold nights wherever you are. 
So we'll definitely talk more about that in the swarm prevention episode coming up soon. So Matthew, the short answer is no, you don't have to go through every frame. And that's something, it's very confusing because the way they teach you in B-School, of course, and for beginners is to start on the outside and you literally go through every frame in that hive. Part of that is getting used to seeing the shape of how the colony arranges things, how it's all arranged, and really to try to so that you see everything and can take in that as a beginner. Once you get more experienced, you can kind of cut to the chase and look at the parts that matter according to that season. And so, for example, you know, some seasons, the big matter is do they have enough food? Other seasons, the big matter is do they have enough room in the brood nest? Or are they thinking of swarming? Are they starting to put a lot of queen cups or any of those queen cups charged? Or do they have an egg in them? That type of thing. So you can zero in as you get more experience on the part that matters that particular season. And those two things are always connected. So thank you, Matthew. And I'm so honored that you are listening in New Zealand. And it's hard to wrap my head around that y'all are completely opposite to whatever season we have. But thank you for listening. Let's see. The next question came from, actually it was not a question, but Jared Webster via Facebook had written, because I had asked in a few podcasts back for y'all to write and tell me, the people who were overwintering colonies, to tell me their hopes and plans for their bee yards in 2020. And he said, he said he thought he'd share his. And I'm glad you did, Jared. Thank you. He says, I'll start at why, which I just love that. That's it, We should always start at why. But anyway, why do I have bees? To pollinate my garden and fruit trees. One hive would do it, but two hives is a much safer game. So after having zero hives over last winter, I arrived at this math. Commercial beekeepers are reporting just less than 50% losses each year. Of course, this isn't every apiary. It's an average, but it gave me a place to start. So if I consider my worst case scenario to be a 50% loss, even though, of course, 100% loss is always a potential, and plan for that, I work backwards as follows. Two healthy hives in spring will be the result of four healthy hives heading into winter. So my goal is to have four healthy, mature, full hives going into next winter. Toward that end, I am hoping to spend time this winter building enough boxes, bottom boards, quilt boards, and such to house those four colonies, plus enough five-frame nukes to facilitate splits and act as support and resource hives. For reference, going into this winter, I have two mature colonies that each have two deep boxes plus a super, one small colony from a summer split that's in a single deep 10-frame, and a crazy five over five nuke that just has too many stories behind it. <laughs> so thank you, Jared. I, I love all the reality points that you have there, that we can have all this nice clean math in our head, and then you end up with that crazy five over five nuke that has too many stories. And that's so true in my yard because they're, and actually it's what makes my yard not very efficient <laughs> in terms compared to the commercial beekeepers. You know, commercial beekeepers, they, everything is standardized. So they go out to a yard, it might have 40 colonies in it, and all 40 in that yard get a same or similar treatment and they equalize those colonies out to make them as similar as they can so that they can do all the same thing and I didn't mean particularly my treatment by that although that's true too but I meant like if they're adding supers or they're pulling queens or they're whatever they're doing they do it to the whole yard and that makes for very time efficient for us hobbyist beekeepers we have the time and the interest to do things individual hives like so each of my individual hives has something going on a whole story line that led them to how they are today and that's what Jared is talking about you always have that little stray that something weird's going on with I think your math is good Jared the article one article I read or a YouTube that I watched one time said that that five 
hives was the best number to make sure statistically to make sure you come out with live hives the next spring. But frankly, four colonies and a nuke or two, you've got really, really good odds, in my opinion, of having survivors, even in a worst case scenario, to come out on the other side. Now, you've also got the best case scenario, which is they all come through and you were back in that situation of needing to get in your workshop and build a bunch of more stuff. <laughs> I wish so much I could build at that level of um, precision, but I'm, I'm definitely only a rough carpenter. So yes, so running out of equipment, if you do well, your reward is you run out of equipment and it, and now you have a whole different problem. But it's a fun problem and you don't have to enlarge your yard if you don't want to. You can instead get you some cardboard nuke boxes and start selling those, you know, at about 175, 200 a pop. It that's that is your reward for getting healthy colonies through. I like your math. I like how you're thinking. You are planning on losses. And unfortunately, in this new world that we all keep bees in these days, planning on a certain amount of loss is just what we need to do. Back in the old days, the rate of loss was so low that you always had plenty of hives to make up for losses, even a hobbyist. Now, the loss rates are just higher. And as you mentioned, Jared, you know, the average of 50% loss a little less than 50% on the commercial beekeepers, that's definitely an average because commercial beekeeper Brian Fisher that that I follow and kind of keep up with what he's doing, his loss rate is less than 5% or so. Now, you know, he does, he has very experienced, he's a master beekeeper and he does really, in my opinion, great bee management under a traditional treatment model, but he achieves those phenomenally low losses. And because he is primarily a honey producer, that is the only way for him to stay in business is to have losses that low. Because as we talked about, as well as everybody knows, you know, you, you pretty much you can make bees or you can make honey. Now that's from a commercial reference because in the backyard level, you can make bees and honey at the same time and I'm living proof, but I don't need a ton of honey. It's not how I'm attempting to feed my family. So it's very different if you are in a commercial. But your math is good, in my opinion. I think that is the way the going in. The the other thing that I've been thinking about lately is, I don't know how many of you have, are gardeners, but the difference in a perennial plant and a reseeding annual. And I'll do a whole podcast on this sometime. I think the old model of thinking of a hive was a perennial plant. It was going to be, a hive was going to be in that box. They were going to come out the next year. And like perennials in your garden, you're kind of surprised if they die. You're like, wow, you know, what happened to that? As opposed to an annual plant that its life cycle dies, well, not really dies, but casts seed. And that's how the new plants come in the spring. And to a point, not exactly, but to a point, I think there may be a similarity in that in beekeeping in this new world that we find. And when I say that, I just mean of reduced forage because humans are everywhere and we don't always plant things that are great for bees. Reduced forage, increased challenges in terms of chemical and pesticide exposure that affects insects. But And the bees are insects too. So if you're killing insects that eat your crops, you're also killing to a certain extent the insects that pollinate your crops and then also the challenges of a parasite like the mites that spread all the viruses 
which the viruses are just getting more varied, more numerous, and in some cases, unfortunately, more more deadly for the bees. And there's lots of reasons for that. But in coping with all that, one of the things that a backyard beekeeper can do is to kind of think of hives as reseeding annual. You are going to save seed from the hive and replant those next year. And in beekeeping, to me, I'm not talking about just letting hives die. I believe in care for all my hives. But in consciously saving some seed, making some little baby nukes, resource hives, and overwintering them, and they become the seed for the next year in case your perennial plant, the original hive, uh, doesn't make it through winter. So I'll talk a lot more about that. You know how you get this idea in your head and you're like, oh, okay, this is like this. That's what your post made me think of. (laughs) And I'll get to more of that later, Jared. Thank you so much for writing. I loved hearing your plans. I give you two thumbs up and I can't wait to hear how it goes. And also Jared requested more information about a shook swarm, which is one of those uh, techniques. I hear more about that from the UK beekeepers. I'm going to look that up and figure out a way to describe that and get to that too, because it is a handy technique for several problems that you can solve with a shook swarm. So next, Linda Aldridge, who is a patron, wrote in with a multi-part kind of question series. She says, hey there, Lee, so happy to be a new patron. I'm a second year beekeeper here, but learning fast. Had some podcast ideas for you to consider, which by the way, everybody, I love to hear your ideas for podcasts. One, keeping colonies small and allowing some spring swarm. I live in the middle of a national forest on an acre, and it seems an ideal place to allow a certain amount of swarming to increase our feral population. I'd love to hear Tom Seeley's opinion on this as well. So I'm going to stop right there and address this part, because obviously I've got some swarming episodes coming up. But first, Linda, there is a whole school of thought, as you obviously know from Tom Seeley, about mimicking some of the survival techniques of wild feral bees, like in the National Forest that he studied for a few decades, mimicking those in our bee yards to the extent that we're able in order to help perhaps with disease resistance. One of these ideas is in nature, bee colonies tend to be quite a bit smaller than the ones that we typically have in Langstroth hives. I mentioned Langstroth in particular because those, I think, are probably some of the bigger hives, biggest maybe. So there is a thought of allowing swarming from the point of a brood break. Anytime there's a swarm, there's a lack of brood in the colony, that part of the colony that's left behind until they build a new queen and until she is old enough to go out, get mated, hopefully all that works, comes back, lay eggs, and then the brood cycle starts again. And that gap, the brood break, is one of the most critical techniques that I have found in managing mites without chemicals in, in that I do that consciously, create brood breaks in my yard. And it acts as a kind of natural um, mite treatment in that it sets back the mites to a level that more mimics what wild bees are dealing with. I always try to correct this. I mean, since honeybees are not native to the United States, I think someone has told me that technically they're not wild, but they're feral, which means they've gotten away from domestication and are doing their own thing out in the wild. But so I know that. So no, nobody has to write in and correct me, but I'm just going to call it that because the bees that Tom Seeley's been studying up in upstate New York in the National Forest, I mean, to me, those could be considered wild because they've been living out in the forest for decades and decades and decades, maybe hundreds of years, I don't know, since the bees came over with the settlers. Well, the, yeah. So anyway, oh, let's see, how do I get back around? So the idea of allowing swarming to create a brood break, 
Yes, that does work. But in my opinion, it's not the best way to do a brood break. Because when you allow a swarm, the hive that remains, there, there is going to be a roll of the dice of whether it's successful. There's many, many things that can go wrong with the hive left behind. That said, there's also many, many things that can go wrong with the hive that goes out and tries to find a new home and set up shop. They may or may not be successful. In fact, I think Tom Seeley's numbers, it's only that high, the swarm that goes out into the world, which I can't think of the official name of that, but the they only have about a 20% success rate. And then I think the hive that's left behind in terms of requeening has something along the lines of a 70-80% success rate. So for me, as a backyard beekeeper, I have the option to mimic that swarm with some different split techniques. That way I have both halves and I and, and I emphasize that because sometimes when bees swarm, they don't do it in halves. They do they break up that hive into many pieces and that's that increase their risk. Those are the double or nothing bees. <laughs> but anyway, in my yard I can control that. I can control the size of the split. So that means I can help them. And you know, there's a whole debate. Do they need our help? But I'm just not going to get into that because to me, if I'm keeping bees, then they are becoming part of my animal husbandry. And the way I keep any animal on my farm is to care for it and do the best I can to give them what they need to succeed. So I like to, if I can, to do the split consciously so that I can help sort of load the dice in their favor. I mean, that's as good as it gets. And you know, loaded dice don't even always roll a winner every time. I mean, if they're that loaded, they're, you can't even call them dice. But still, you you try to do everything you can to give your colonies their very best chance at success. That's why I like to do controlled swarming or brood breaks or splits, depending on how you look at it. Now, in terms of letting swarms go out there, the other downside is, now this is not a problem for you, Linda, but for everybody who lives in a populated area, you know, some of the places that swarms love to get are people's attics and people's walls, and that creates a whole new problem. Sometimes those bees will be killed by them or the exterminator that they call in anyway, and they're going to have to pay to have those bees removed either alive or dead and that's unfortunate. Now, like more like you, Linda, I live pretty far out so the there's plenty of hollow trees. And the idea of letting swarms swarm to help the feral population, I'm not so sure. Probably the feral bees are probably much better bees to live out there in the forest than the ones we have. In fact, I believe the the benefit probably comes the other way in that if our uh, bees, our hive bees are mating with feral bees, hopefully some of those feral genetics will help the survivability of our bees. That said, the genetics of the feral bees may or may not be what a beekeeper wants. They may be very testy, very defensive. They may not put up a lot of extra honey. They may swarm all the time. So there's all these things that they need out there in the woods that are, may or may not be good for the beekeeper's relationship with the bee. But anytime we keep hives near wild areas, and that's the exact situation I'm in, we're interacting with those feral bees for better or for worse. For me, this gives me a, a sense of a high level of accountability in that I do not want quote-unquote, mite bombs affecting feral bees in my area. I do not want out-of-control viruses or anything affecting those feral bees. So to me, that level of care is higher 
if I know that my bees are rubbing elbows, as bees do out in the with feral populations that are perhaps, I hope, fingers crossed, surviving out there. So, you bring up several very good points. In my opinion, I like to control swarming, not to prevent it, but to mimic it in more controlled ways. That said, <laughs> if you have a few hives, there are always going to be some that get away. And they're going to go out there and swarm and do and do what they will. So that's going to take care of itself. Unless you're one of my mentors who said he had never, ever, ever, ever had a swarm. And I'm like, really? How did you do that? And he says, I just never look up. <laughs> he said when he goes out to the BRC, he never looks up to see what's hanging in the trees. And therefore, he's never had a swarm, which I thought was kind of cute. But so you're going to have swarms. They are going to go out there and do what they will, for better or for worse, with the feral population. So in my opinion, the focus on rearing our bees, making more bees, making better bees all within as much as we can control that is where I want to put my time and it would be something to think about. Linda goes on and says, how many hives are the right number to keep it fun? And she said she got a lot of interesting responses on bee source. Some had landed on 10. Even Michael Palmer, famous Vermont beekeeper, chimed in and said 1,500 were fun for him. <laughs> and yet another dreaded working the 40 hives they have. My mentor here was complaining of the work at 25 hives. Now, now I'm at four production colonies with one nuke. All are alive and thriving and a few sub-zero sub temps in my winter. So my winter configuration is working. My number this year, I think, will be five production colonies and a resource hive or two. Would love to know your thoughts. And I think that sounds like a great number for a serious hobbyist, Linda, because five hives will definitely keep you busy. They will keep you working. They'll keep you hopping to keep them limited to five because, you know, that five, if you do well, then that five, they're going to want to make 10. <laughs> and so you have the delightful problem of either enlarging your yard or providing good bees to other beekeepers in your area. It really, it just comes down to how much time, energy, back strength, and will how much how much you want to do most beekeepers i know have gone up and down and they sort of fall upon their magic number i do really like again the way that you are counting having production hives and nukes as resources and backups and fun <laughs> so i think you're on to the right thing and i would be interested to hear what you think about 5 is that too much for you or too few. <laughs> you probably heard Tina Sebastian in the last one talk about, I just want more bees, more bees. And sometimes that happens, but it is smart for us to pick the number that we can do without harm to ourselves, without harm to our marriages, without, you know, all that. I'm still working on my number. My original number was eight. And that just wasn't enough. <laughs> now, I have kind of solved this by, I try to keep eight-ish, which is more like a dozen, you know, ish here at home, and then keep some out yards where I have anywhere from, you know, two to four hives in stashed in various other people's yards for various reasons that I'll talk about later. But I hope that helps, Linda. And please keep writing me and updating me on how it's all going. So finally, the last question I'll do is Mike Murdoch from Facebook said, my name is Mike. I started with two local nukes last year. It's been a learning experience, sometimes nerve wracking, but always fun. You ask for topics and ideas. My focus is to ex expand and split my hives in the spring, assuming we make it through the winter. Timing and technique for new a new beekeeper is my concern. A local experienced beekeeper mentioned to wait for purple-eyed drones. 
I'm not sure if this is a joke or some kind of hazing, but maybe it's true. A clear explanation of what to watch for would be great. Thanks for what you do. I really enjoy your podcast. So Mike, thank you so much. I just have to laugh that you said, I'm not sure if this is hazing because, you know, that is always a possibility. (laughs) But in this case, it is not. Purple-eyed drones are a real thing. And what that is, is in the early spring, if you are thinking of making a split, or raising queens in any fashion, you want to make sure that by the time that queen goes out for her mating flight, that there are sexually mature drones available for her out there to mate with. Otherwise, she is uh, a goner. And so one of the techniques that you can use is to look at drone brood, open up drone brood, which you often accidentally do in early spring because sometimes they put it between the frames and when you take off the box, it yanks them open. And so those larvae, the white larvae that you see laying on the frames that you've just accidentally ripped into, those are usually drones. And that's a signal. If they're making drones, then that hive is getting ready for the process of making more hives or swarming. When if you if those open drone cells, if they have matured enough to the purple eyed stage, so if they're younger they're all white, and then the closer they get to emerging they get purple eyes, then in theory, the if you were to graft a queen or start a queen from scratch, at that point, then the ages would match up. She would be out on her mating flight at about the same time that that drone in the purple-eyed stage has matured and is out looking for a date. And that would all work out. So I just loved it that you questioned whether it was hazing. Probably a good thing to wonder. Beekeepers can be jokesters. Now, I'm wishing you the absolute best. As I've mentioned, I will be talking a lot more in episodes to come about seasonality, which that's the purple-eyed drones. That's part of of the the bee the beehive life cycle which is completely connected seasonality. Well I've run way over time here and I've still got more questions that people have sent in. So I will get to those in an, an upcoming episode. One of the soon to come bee school episodes uh, will be about seasonality. I mentioned this in the last one and then I didn't get to it. But the season, the life cycle interaction of the bee as it interacts with the seasons. To me, this is one of the big critical aspects of understanding bees and therefore being a better beekeeper. So I'll get to that and all the other things I mentioned. I hope you all have a wonderful week. If I can, I'll get you an extra podcast out there before next weekend. If not, I will see you next weekend. Please keep writing. You can email me, blueridge714 at gmail.com. If you happen to already be on Facebook, that's an easy way for me to read your comments and be able to respond. You can message me on the Five Apple Farm Bees, Honey, and More Facebook page. And of course, the patrons over at Patreon. I have a notification set up on my phone so that if you write me, I want to respond to that as quickly as possible because I appreciate your support of this podcast so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you have some great winter days dreaming of the spring to come.